we are still considering, you remember, the words which are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Romans in chapter 8 and verses 3 and 4, the third and the fourth verses in the eighth chapter of the epistle to the Romans. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Now we're in process of considering this great and uh, mighty statement, which contains in itself, as I've been saying, such an extraordinary summary of Christian truth and of Christian doctrine. Uh, we're taking it phrase by phrase because of the richness of the statements and because of the extraordinary riches which are here presented to us. But we are doing so, of course, because the apostle obviously intended us to do so, because it is only as we understand this truth, these doctrines, that we can really hope to live the Christian life. In other words, we are once more confronted by this indissoluble association between doctrine and life. So many people foolishly say, ah, what we want is to be able to live the life. Can't you tell us how to live the Christian life? We're not concerned about this doctrine. We're not interested. Why should you go after all that? To which the simple answer is, it is only the people who really know and understand the doctrine who can live the life. This is God's way of sanctifying us. Our Lord had prayed, you remember, sanctify them by or through thy truth. Thy word is truth. There's no shortcut to holiness. Holiness is something which is developed in us partly and chiefly as the result of our understanding of these great and mighty truths. That is why, of course, the apostle goes on repeating them. I've been emphasizing that there is nothing which he says here but that he's already said it. But why does he say it again then? Well, that's the answer. It is only as we grasp these doctrines that we can hope to become a sanctified people separated unto good works and unto God. Very well, then, let us continue with this. What is he telling us? Well, he's telling us how God has done what the law could not do. The law couldn't do it because it was weak through the flesh. God has done it. It is God who has done it. How has he done it? He has done it by sending his own Son, his only begotten eternal Son, he has sent him into this world, and we have seen that he sent him in the likeness of sinful flesh, and all that that means and represents and connotes. Now then, we come to the next step, which is this. Why did he thus send him? Why did the Lord Jesus Christ come into this world in the likeness of sinful flesh? And the apostle immediately gives us the answer. It is for sin. Now, these we have here just two words, and both very short words. Two words of three letters each. Six letters altogether. For sin. But the question is, what do they mean? And here, of course, is a very vital part of this teaching. 
Now there are those who say that it just means concerning sin or uh, with respect to sin or in connection with sin. And of course they do mean that. But they don't only mean that. And where those who say that they uh, where that they mean that and only that go wrong, we now must proceed to consider. This statement goes further than that. He did come in connection with sin or concerning sin. Yes, but these two words tell us much more than that about it. What do they tell us? And here the simplest way of approaching the matter is to look at the uh, various uh, translations which are offered us. Now, I'm reading here out of the authorized version, but those of you who've got copies of the authorized version with marginal references will notice that in the margin there is an alternative suggestion put, an alternative translation, as an offering for sin. Now, those who've got revised version copies of the Bible, will find that the revised version actually translates it like that. In the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. That's how the revised version puts it. Those who've got the revised standard version will find that there again the translation is as the authorized version for sin, but there's a footnote saying or and as an offering for sin. They give the alternative. And those who delight in the Schofield Bible will find that the Schofield Bible in exactly the same way puts the alternative in the margin, indicating that what is really meant is that it is a sin offering, as an offering for sin. In other words, there seems to be more or less complete unanimity about this in the translations and in the different versions of the Bible. Well, now then, how have they all arrived at this conclusion? And the answer is not at all difficult to find. If you take the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the uh, Old Testament, which was in current use at the time when our Lord was in this world and the Apostle Paul, and which was so generally used, certainly used by all the Hellenistic Jews, and other Jews were familiar with it, the Apostle Paul was obviously very familiar with it because he quotes from it quite directly, uh, quite frequently. Now, if you use that Septuagint, you will find this interesting thing, that when they came across the expression sin offering in the Old Testament in the Hebrew, they often translated that by just these two words, for sin, and no more. Now, I mustn't keep you this evening in giving the illustrations of this, but uh, let me mention some of them to you. For instance, in the book of Leviticus, uh, chapter 4, and in the third verse, you've got one example of this very thing to which I am referring. Let me just read it to you. If the priest that is anointed do sin according to the sin of the people, then let him bring for his sin which he hath sinned, a young bullock without blemish unto the Lord for a sin offering. But if you look at that Septuagint, you will not find for a sin offering, but you will read for sin. Let him bring a young bullock without blemish unto the Lord for sin. In other words, they translate for a sin offering by the words for sin. 
you'll find exactly the same thing in the book of Numbers, chapter 8, verse 8. You'll find the same thing in Psalm 39 and in verse 6. And there are other examples and illustrations also. So that you see, it was their custom to put down the two words for sin when they meant, and it was meant to convey the notion of as a sin offering or as an offering for sin. Now, there's another very interesting bit of evidence which is found in the 10th chapter of the epistle to the Hebrews, and that is why I read that portion at the beginning. Look, for instance, at uh, the 6th verse where we read in the authorized translation, in burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast had no pleasure. Now, those of you who've got copies of the Bible in which words which were added by the translators in order to make the meaning clear and which are put in italics in order to show that they're not in the original, but they've been added by the translator in order to make it clear as to what he's talking about, you will find that the word sacrifices is in italics. In other words, what uh, they found in the Greek was, in burnt offerings and for sin, thou hast had no pleasure. But they very rightly here translate it as sacrifices for sins. But they were inconsistent. They should have done the same thing in this third verse of the eighth chapter of the epistle to the Hebrews, because they were confronted by exactly the same words. Now, in Hebrews 10.6, they very rightly add sacrifice, sacrifices for sin. So they should have done the same in Romans 8.3. And then the same thing applies to the 10th, to the 8th verse also in that 10th chapter of the epistle to the Hebrews. Above when he said sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin. Again, it's supplied. Instead of just saying for sin, they have rightly put in the word which helps us to understand exactly what they mean. So that if they'd been consistent in their translation, when they did this authorized version, they would have done the same here in Romans 8.3. So what it means is this. God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. Now this is obviously... A very important point. The New Testament teaching everywhere is that the main object of our Lord's coming into this world was that he might deliver us from sin and condemnation by becoming an offering for us, an offering for sin. Now, of course, you know the whole of the Old Testament teaches that. All these types in the Old Testament, all the burnt offerings and sacrifices, the killing of the animals and the presenting of the blood, all that is a foreshadowing of the coming of the Son of God into this world. He was going to come into this world, what for? To be the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Now then, that is why what the Old Testament tells us about the object of his coming. The New Testament, of course, tells us exactly the same thing. So that here, when we are told about how he came into the world in the likeness of sinful flesh and false sin, and the apostle goes on to say why he came, he says what he says everywhere else. He came as an offering for sin. But that it's translated here, and for sin. Now, I say this is the teaching everywhere. 
Look at Galatians 1, 4, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world, says the apostle. Then in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, he says, He hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. God, you see, he says, there was reconciling the world unto himself. God was in Christ doing that. How did he do it? That's how he did it. By making him sin for us, who knew no sin. He hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's the same idea everywhere. Take what we are told in the epistle to the Hebrews, uh, chapter 2 and verse 9. We see not yet all things put under him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Same thing again. The purpose of our Lord's coming into the world was that he should taste death. In other words, that he should be an offering for sin. And then you've got it stated by the Apostle Peter in his first letter and first chapter, verse 19. He's, oh, he says that we are redeemed from our vain conversation, inherited by tradition from our fathers, not by silver and gold or things like that, but by the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Now, that's what the apostle is saying here. And I've had to adduce all that in order to make you see that he's just saying what he always says when he's dealing with the object of the coming of the Son of God into this world. He came not to teach privately. He came to save us, and in, to do that he has to be an expiation, to make expiation, to be a propitiation for our sins. Now then, that is what the apostle is saying. You see, the context uh, demands that, insists upon that. What's he concerned about? He's concerned to show how there is no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. That's the statement he starts off with in verse 1. Now then, in showing how there is no condemnation, he gives us the explanation. There is no condemnation because Christ has been made an offering for sin on our behalf. He'd said it all in chapter 3 already, beginning at verse 24, and going on to that famous statement in verses 25 and 26, where he says that he has set him forth as a propitiation for sin. That's it, through faith in his blood. Propitiation, expiation. That's the very thing that he is saying here. So the little words for sin are just reminding us again, summing up all that he's been saying about the way of salvation that God has provided through laying our sins upon his Son and punishing them in him that we might be forgiven for sin, as an offering for sin. That's why he sent him into the world in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now, this is absolutely vital. That's why I'm emphasizing it. Because, you see, you can't even understand the phrase that follows unless you're clear about the meaning of for sin. What is the phrase that follows? It is this. Condemned sin in the flesh. 
The law couldn't do this thing. Well, how has God done it? Well, by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Now, what does this mean? Here again, you see, people go astray. They say that it just means that uh, our Lord, by living a perfect and a sinless life, in that way, condemned sin. Showed how wrong sin was, how bad, how evil sin was. He showed his disapproval of it. He showed God's disapproval of it. So they think that it means simply that he expressed disapproval by living this holy life in the flesh and in the likeness of sinful flesh. Others, of course, who are perfectionists, they do not hesitate to say that this means that he destroyed sin in the flesh. You know the teaching, which would... Uh, uh, say that what the Apostle is teaching in these first four verses is that sin is entirely eradicated out of us. Taking that wrong view which they take of the law of sin and death in verse 2, they're quite consistent with themselves when they say that here he is saying that sin was destroyed in the flesh. And if we only believe and have this experience, sin will be entirely destroyed in us, taken right out of us, so that we are sinless and perfect. Well, now, what of this? Well, again, I would suggest that both those interpretations are not true. They're not correct for these reasons. If this simply means that our Lord, by living that perfect life, expressed disapproval of sin, his own and God's, well, then I add that the Son of God did nothing but what had already been done. God had already done that by the law. The law was given in order to do that very thing. The law was given to express disapproval of sin, to condemn it in that sense completely, to show what God thought of it and to reveal his holiness. So if that is all this means, it had already been done. There was no need for the Son of God to come into the world in order to tell us that God disapproved of sin. The law was added, he's already told us in chapter 5 verse 20, to do that very thing. It was added that the offense might abound. And he'd already said that in chapter 4, verse 15. So that that, it seems to me, puts that interpretation right out. When you come to this question of destroying sin, well, all the arguments against perfectionism come in again immediately. One, let me give you one which I think is sufficient. If sin is destroyed in us, why does he have to say in verses 12 and 13, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. That is a meaningless exhortation if sin has been destroyed in us. And I'm happy to say this, that certain perfectionists whom I know are ready to admit that, that they can't answer that argument, that they just don't understand it and can't explain it. But more than that, let me give you some further reasons. Sin is obviously not destroyed in us. We've seen that in chapter 6, because he says there in verse 12, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. We are not to do that. We are to mortify the relics and the remnants and the activities of sin which still remain in our mortal bodies. But indeed, there is an, a further argument which is quite conclusive about this matter. Look at this word condemned. Condemned sin in the flesh. 
It is exactly the same word that the apostle used in the first verse, where he says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Well, if condemnation means here to destroy, it means to destroy in verse 1. And you read, There is therefore now no destruction to them that are in Christ Jesus, which is ridiculous. He means condemnation. And condemnation means exactly the same thing in the first verse as in this verse. What does it mean? It means to pass judgment upon. It means to punish. Punish. Now, the law could not punish sin in that sense. The law expressed its disapproval. But in expressing its disapproval, it didn't finally punish sin in this sense and pass its final judgment upon it so as to put it out of court as far as the believer is concerned. So the word means pass judgment upon and punish. And therefore what we are told here is this. God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin punished. Passed judgment upon sin in the flesh. It's his great statement in other words that what God did was to condemn and to punish our sin in his own son who was in this world in the likeness of sinful flesh and in the body. That's what he's saying. This is God's way of dealing with this problem. He sent his son like that and there he punished, condemned sin in his flesh. So we must emphasize in the flesh which, of course, means, as we saw last week, in our nature. It was condemned in him as a man, as the Apostle Peter likes to put it in his first epistle, chapter 2, verse 24, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes we are healed. That's what, that's what we're being told here. In the body. He condemned sin in the body of his own son. He was in the flesh when his, our sins were laid upon him and they were punished in him. Man had sinned in the flesh. Sin was punished in the flesh. He came on earth in order to do this so that sin in this way might be punished and condemned. The judgment has been passed and has been meted out upon him. It is, of course, the heart of the gospel the very center, the glory of the gospel, that God has thus, by punishing our sins in his Son, incarnate, remains just, but can nevertheless be the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. Now the apostle is saying this great and glorious and central thing once more. Very well. Now then, the next step is this. Why did it happen in that way? Why was it necessary for God to send his son into the world in the likeness of sinful flesh and to make him an offering for sin? Why was it necessary? Why was it necessary that sin should be condemned in the flesh in that particular way? And the answer we've already anticipated about a fortnight ago, it is the very next phrase at the beginning of verse 4. That, in order that, the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, 
but after the Spirit. Very well, now then, we must look at this once more. What is the meaning of this phrase, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us? Well, the first thing it means, of course, is that the law no longer can make any claim upon us. The righteous demands of the law have been satisfied in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The law demands obedience. He gave it. The law insists upon punishing sin. He has borne the punishment. The righteous demands of the law have been fulfilled in him. So that first and foremost, this does mean justification. And that we are clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We are no longer condemned. We are free from condemnation. And we are clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But, I again want to demonstrate to you that we mustn't stop at that point. And that to me it is almost tragic to stop at that point, like some of these great commentators do. There is more involved here, and again I want to remind you as to why we must insist upon this. Again I take you back to chapter 7, verses 4 and 6. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also have become dead to the law by the body of Christ. Right. By the body of Christ, you see. That's another reminder that God sent him as a sin offering that sin might be condemned in the flesh. Because of that, you have become dead to the law by the body of Christ. That, in order that, the same argument as we've got here in the fourth verse of chapter 8, that, in order that, what? Well, that we should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead. That, in order that, why? For this reason in order that we should bring forth fruit to God. He doesn't stop at justification. It isn't merely a declaratory statement that we are righteous and clothed with the righteousness of Christ. There's more. We are to bring forth fruit unto God. He's already said that. Why should he suddenly drop that? Because he's taking this up again and working it out, as I showed you a few weeks ago. But look at it again in verse 6. But now, he says, we are delivered from the law. That was the way in which it happened, because he came for sin, that sin might be condemned in the flesh. Now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that, in order that, we should serve in newness of spirit, and not in the oldness of the letter. Serve, you notice, and serve in a new way, not in the oldness of the letter, but in newness of spirit. In other words, The apostle doesn't leave it at our justification, at the fact that we are declared and made righteous by Christ's righteousness. No, no, there is more than that imputed righteousness. There is this imparted righteousness. We are to bear fruit in this life. We are to serve in this new way, not in the oldness of the letter, but in the newness of the Spirit. But now then, Let me now then show you, because this is the thing that you are entitled to ask me at this point. Why was it necessary that the Son of God should be made a sin offering in order that we might serve in this new way and bear fruit to God? And here is the answer. The answer is 
that before we can possibly live in this new way and bear fruit unto God, we must be delivered from the law. It is absolutely essential. We cannot bring forth fruit unto God while we are under the law. We've got to be delivered from the law. That is the first thing that's got to be faced. Very well, that's the very thing the apostle is facing. Isn't that what he said in verse 2? For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. And verses 3 and 4 are nothing but an exposition of that statement in verse 2. So he's going on now to show why it was essential that we should be delivered from the law and how it was actually done by the Lord Jesus Christ being made an offering for sin and sin being condemned in that way in his flesh. Let me put it to you then in this form. How does the death of Christ as our substitute, as our sin bearer, as an offering for sin, as the Lamb of God, how does that enable the righteousness of the law to be fulfilled in me? Let's put it like this. By nature, we are all of us under the reign and the dominion and the power of sin. I can't prove that again. It's all in chapter 5. And we've done it in great detail. We've inherited that from Adam. Every one of us born into this world is born in sin. We are born under the dominion of sin. We are born under the power of sin. You've got it in one verse, the last verse in chapter 5. That as sin hath reigned unto death. That's where we were. Even so might grace reign now through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. We're all then, I say, born under the rule and the reign and the power of sin. He's established it all again at great length in chapter 7, verses 7 to 25, where he's just elaborated what he says there in 521. All right, that's what we are by nature. The law, keep, the, this keeps us under the law which both condemns us to death and, as we have seen, aggravates our tendency to sin. That's verse 5 again in chapter 7. For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sin, the passions of sin, which were by or aggravated by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. All right, there we are. While we are under this dominion and power of sin, we are under the law, and it condemns us to death and aggravates our tendency to sin. Because let us never forget, the strength of sin is the law. You remember the argument at the end of 1 Corinthians 15? The sting of death is sin, and the strength, the thing that puts the power into the sting, is the law. The strength of sin is the law. Very well. Here is what sin does to us when it reigns over us and what enables it to do it more than anything is the law. Now then, how can I be delivered from sin? That's the question. How can I be delivered from sin? Well, obviously, in the light of that, the first thing to do is to take the sting out of sin. What is the sting of sin? What is the strength and power of sin? 
it is the law. The strength of sin is the law. Very well. If I want to be delivered from the power of sin, I must find what it is that can take that power out of sin. Well, that's the law, says the apostle. So that now then, the first thing to face is, how can I get rid of this law which puts the power into sin and therefore makes it sting me in death? And the answer is, of course, there's only one way. There is only one way to get rid of that power of the law which it puts into sin. And it is the way that God has adopted. It is the death of the Son of God for sin. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. That you'll find in chapter 10 of this epistle to the Romans. Now then, how does he do it? Well, he does it like this. He has fully satisfied, as I say, the demands of the law, both in keeping the law and in bearing the punishment that it had pronounced and wanted to mete out upon sin. But in Christ that has happened. And because it has happened, there is no more that the law can do to us. We can say, therefore, with the apostle that we are dead to the law. Christ has exhausted all the possibilities of the law with respect to us. He's the end of the law. So that the law can say nothing to me. The law then, as far as the believer is concerned, is absolutely powerless. Yes, but as the law is the strength of sin, take out that, sin is left without power. Now that's the way, you see, it works out. And the apostle therefore doesn't hesitate to say, as we've seen in chapter 6 in verse 2, God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? You remember that phrase, don't you? How shall we that died to sin live any longer therein? He says, I'm dead to the law and I'm dead to sin. How? Well, that's how I'm dead to birth. You see, Christ deals with the law. And in dealing with the law, sin is also left powerless. Because the strength of sin is the law. Sin can't do it when the power that is in it given by the law is removed. And the result is that we are taken out of the realm and the reign and the rule and the power of sin. Now that was the mighty statement again in chapter 5 verse 21. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. How does it work? It works like this. Sin condemns the natural men through the law, but by the death of Christ it itself has been condemned. That's the first thing. But there's another thing. As it was the law that aggravated and inflamed sin within me, take away the law as it is done by the death of Christ, the aggravation is taken away. The thing you see that was working in me to aggravate and inflame the motions of sin in my members has gone. I'm dead to it. It's no longer a power as far as I'm concerned. So you see now how I am being delivered from this rule and reign and tyranny of sin. Not only in general, but in this very practical manner. 
And then comes the third and the most wonderful step of all, which is this. My position as a Christian is not simply that I'm no longer condemned. It is not simply that the aggravation of sin which the law produced in me has been taken away, because all that is negative. Something still more wonderful has happened. And you see, he's already put it to us. In, uh, he, he did it first of all in chapter 5, but he's been doing it very explicitly in chapter 7, in verse 4, where he says that we are married to another. We are married to Christ. We are joined to Christ. You see, this is the tremendous and the thrilling thing. He's put it here in chapter 8 in verse 1 by saying we are in Christ Jesus. He's put it in verse 2 by talking about it as the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. This isn't a negative matter. It's positive as well. I am now positively united to Christ. I am joined to him. He's the head and I'm a part of the body and his power and his life are in me. He has put his spirit into me. But never forget this. You cannot be joined to Christ while you're still joined to the law and while you are still joined to Adam. The first thing that must be done before I can be married to Christ is that I should cease to be married to the law. That's the argument at the beginning of chapter 7. So, you see, he had to bring in this death of Christ again. He had to say that he was sent in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin, as an offering for sin, that sin might be condemned in the flesh, because if that doesn't happen, the law is still there. And while the law is there, I cannot be joined to Christ. But the law having been removed, Christ having fulfilled it in every way, I am free to be married to the other. I am married to him. As a Christian, I am married to Christ. I am joined. I am united to Christ. I am in Christ, and his power is now in me, delivering me and enabling the righteousness of the law to be fulfilled in me. That's it. That's the argument. That's what he's saying. The life and power of Christ, the reign of grace, are now in us as Christians and working in us actively. And thus it becomes possible that I should bear fruit to God that I should serve in a new way in the newness of the spirit and not the oldness of the letter. Yes, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in me. We don't stop at justification. We go on. The Christian, the moment he's in Christ, sanctification has begun. It's begun already. These authorities with whom I'm disagreeing, they are at great pains in other places to say that you must never separate justification and sanctification. Yet they themselves separate them here by saying that this is justification only. But you cannot be justified without sanctification already starting within you. Indeed, it's a simple matter to prove that all the great statements about the object of our Lord's death upon the cross in the New Testament all include this further, this second element. Let me quote you some of these great statements again. Look at that statement in 1 Peter chapter 2 at the end. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness. And in the first part, the whole of the chapter, he's been telling them how to do that. Dearly beloved, he says, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. 
tells them how to treat kings and masters, tells them what to do when they're threatened and when they suffer. It's all a part of the teaching of sanctification. He says Christ bore our sins in his own body on the tree in order that being dead to sin, we should live to righteousness in this present world. Of course, that's sanctification. And again, look at that tremendous statement in Titus 2.14, which I read to you at the beginning. Listen to this. Who gave himself for us. Why? That he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself not when we die, but here and now it begins and goes on and will finally be perfect, purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. That's not true of any sinner, but this is true of Christians. Peculiar people zealous of good works. That's why he died. He gave himself for us. Same thing as here. That in order that he might redeem us from all iniquity and Purify or separate unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Bring forth fruit unto God, in other words. It is the will of God, he says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, even your sanctification. Now then, this is something which starts in this world in the here and now and progresses. It is something that starts the moment we are in Christ. There's no question of perfection here. Dr. Hodge and others are so terrified of the notion of perfection coming in. They say, if you, mean, if you say that this means anything more than justification, you are saying that it means that we become entirely sanctified. There's no need to say that at all. All it does mean is that sanctification starts and that it will be carried on until finally we shall be perfect in heaven without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, absolutely entire and without any vestige or relic of sin remaining. Even our body shall be glorified, redeemed, waiting for the, the adoption to wit, the redemption of your body. Now, now, what the apostle is saying is that the moment we enter into Christ, this starts. The Christian does begin to bear fruit in this world, fruit unto holiness, fruit unto righteousness, He's been arguing about that very thing in chapter 6, where he's been telling us that we must now yield our members, servants unto righteousness, unto holiness. And so our sanctification goes on progressively. But he's putting it here as a great statement. The object which God had in view in sending his Son into the world in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, that, and condemning sin in his flesh was... What? Well, he's already put it in chapter 6, verse 6. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. Why? That the body of sin might be disannulled. That henceforth we should not serve sin. That's it. In other words, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. In other words, I say, the law having been put on one side, or we having died to it and being separated from it, sin is thus deprived of its power to reign and to rule over us, though it remains troubling us in the body. It no longer is our master. We are no longer under the rule or the reign of sin. It worries us, it troubles us, but it doesn't reign over us. 
Why? Well, because we're in this new realm. We are joined to Christ. We are married to him. His power is in us. Thank God we've been set free from the law because now we can be joined unto Christ and we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling because it is God that worketh in us. And he's doing that now, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Very well, we must leave it at that for this evening. The next phrase is going to substantiate and prove still more conclusively what I've just been saying. And that, in turn, will lead on to the verses that follow, which are nothing but an exposition and an explanation of it. Very well, the big thing that we take away with us, thank God, is just this. The law could never do this. It had failed completely. It was never intended to do it. But, because of what is true of us in sin, we are in a position in which we've got to be set free from the law. That's the first problem. How to be set free from the law of sin and death. And that's the way. It was the only way. It meant that the Son of God had to leave the courts of heaven and be born in the likeness of sinful flesh and live in this world and his soul to be made an offering for sin and our sins to be laid upon him and to be punished in him. He had to be smitten as an offering for sin so that sin might be condemned in that way in him. And that having been done, we can be united to him and the power of his life and the spirit that was in him is in us. And thus, the righteousness of the law is fulfilled in us. Amen. O oh Lord, our God, we offer our humble praise once more at the contemplation of such amazing, such glorious truth. O oh God, Help us to realize something of its meaning. Forgive us that we can talk so glibly and easily about the incarnation and the sufferings and the death of thy dear Son, not realizing the cost and the agony and the suffering involved. O oh Lord, help us to see that all that was done for us and that all that had to be done if we are to be saved and redeemed and the righteousness of the law fulfilled in us. O oh God, open our eyes, we pray thee, to the glory of thy dear Son, to the glory of his death upon the cross. Deliver us from our morbidity, our introspection, our concern about ourselves and our sins, and what we think we need and desire for ourselves. O oh Lord, grant us such a view of the cross that we shall be compelled to say, Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. O oh God, we thank thee that we're in thy hands, that we're under the reign of grace, that thy power is in us and is dealing with us in thy spirit, and that we can look forward to the hope of glory and rejoice in hope of the glory of God.
And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit abide and continue with us now this night throughout the remainder of this hour short uncertain earthly life and pilgrimage and until we shall see him as he is and be like him in glory. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.